the security philosophy, if you want to call it like that, is first of all bigger than the banks. Security happens on a national level in coordination with security agencies, intelligence agencies, the infrastructure players like the telcos, the large cloud providers. It is an industry that is tightly knitted together in terms of cybersecurity. With so many security threats, where should an organization begin to protect itself? Saul Van Buren, the head of technology at Wells Fargo, shares that good security does not happen in isolation. It starts with a coordinated approach. Saul, welcome to the show. Hey, Albert. Listen, I'm pretty confident everyone knows who Wells Fargo is, but in case someone has no clue who you are, can you please tell us what exactly is Wells Fargo and what do you guys do? Yeah, so Wells Fargo is a bank. Exists for 170 years. It's, the, it's one of the top three banks in America, here in the US. It has tentacles all over the world, doing all the things that you would expect from a large bank not only in the US, but also internationally. And I'm the head of technology here at uh, Wells Fargo. So what does that mean, the head of technology? Because if I think of a bank the size of Wells Fargo, there's all kinds of areas where technology is a part of it, from the ATMs, the mobile apps, online interfaces. There's going to be probably internal cust- uh, like employee tooling that they need to do whatever it is they need to do for their jobs. Security systems, like there's tons of stuff that you guys have to do. Do you oversee all of this or do you handle like a division or a branch? What's your role in Compass? It's technology powers the bank, to your point, Albert, and it's all of technology. And that means feature development. So we have thousands of Scrum teams. Uh, It means platform management. It means cloud enablement. It means infrastructure that we still have, network, data centers, servers. It means cybersecurity. Um, and protecting the bank. And yeah, that's back-to-back technology, around 42,000 people that we have in technology out of the 240,000 people that we have as a bank. So it's roughly one-sixth of the total bank. Wow, 42,000 people are in the technology division. That It sounds insane, but then you realize how big Wells Fargo is. It's like, okay, that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You know, these things, Albert, it's not about the number. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's about the, how relative is it to the total expense of the bank? What is the outcome of all the people? Um, because I don't think there is a right number here. Maybe it's too many, yeah. maybe it's not enough. I don't know, but it's all about the outcome, what we deliver, you know, for clients and customers and our own users inside the bank. Yeah, and we joked a little bit about it before we got started about how banking is one of those industries that has quickly, rapidly changed the way it operates, right? We've heard and we've read plenty of articles about retail banks closing retail operations and moving more online, cloud, mobile, whatever you want to call it. Banking is still here. It's just that maybe it's not done at your local branch anymore. Talk about this transformation in banking and what it's meant for your organization, your role, because you know it feels... I'm sure you, it feels extremely fast, but I, you know, I don't know what that's meant for you guys because banking is one of those things where, I mean, you just can't 
make mistakes. Like you're the customers don't allow you to make mistakes. Like I'm a Wells Fargo customer. If you want to zero my credit card, that's cool with me. Actually, that's cool. But when it comes to my total money, you can't mess with my money. I can't ever log into my app and be like, where's my money? I have no access to my money. Like that's never going to be a good thing. You know, you're the tolerance for mistakes is just so much lower in, uh, in banking than other industries that might have moved information online. Give us an idea of what it's been like for you in banking specifically, what you guys have had to do in the last, let's say, decade. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Albert. And, you know, one of my roles that I had before I joined Wells Fargo was to be the CIO for ING Direct. And maybe you still remember ING Direct here in the US. Yep. There was a bank that was like digital only when it was yep. established in 1999. So <laughs> we are, yeah, when people talk about the neo banks and the challenger banks and the online banks, that was already there in 1999. And what we found out, Albert, over time is that through the housing crisis, remember when we had the large financial crisis in 2008? Oh, yeah. The direct banks were very vulnerable because people started to withdraw their deposits and saving accounts because they had no branch in the street and they wanted to Mm. see the bank in the street that gave them trust, that feeling of, hey, I can touch and feel this bank. It's not only up there somewhere on my app. We have seen that the combination of branches and online banking actually led to more growth for any direct bank in the world. So that's when the concept of banking shops were invented. You go back to 2009, 10, 11, digital banks combining banking shops in the street, not typical branches, but shops. Mm. And then I came here uh, to join JP Morgan first. I was the CIO for Chase for, for five years. And I was flabbergasted by the amount of branches that I saw here. And we had discussions around it, like why can we not do more digital and less branches? And then you start to look at the role that the branch still played in the communities, not only for transactions, but also social, also for activities, also for being that face in the street that is still the bank. Mm. That combination is still strong. But over time, I believe that the branch and the role of the branch will slowly fade away. I'm not saying it will be all gone, but it will fade away as we get more and more customers that were born with a mobile phone in their hands, like literally in their hands when they were a baby. That's going to be different. Uh, So what we have done is building out the digital channel. And by now for for Wells, 89% of all transactions of the bank are done on a digital channel, 89%. Mm. We have every day around 20 million visitors of our online channels. And we have over uh, the course of a year, 8 billion logins on the digital channels, 85% of them on, on mobile, on the mobile phone. So it's mobile first. If you talk about digital, it's mobile first, desktop second, and that will also slowly fade away over time. And then still the branch and the advisor and the banker being important for moments of truth. But hey, also that might fade away over time. Yeah. I could still see, for example, like loan origination, business loan origination, for sure, I think. I feel like people still want to talk to someone because, you know, that that's process is a challenge. But I think to your point, general commercial banking, I think we're all getting really used to just not interfacing with somebody. So what kind of, I guess, strains does this put on and continue to put on a company like Wells Fargo? Because I'm imagining there's a lot of investment probably in, obviously, security is a, no question. 
uh, speed and infrastructure has to be there. But there's probably newfound challenges, I'm assuming, that may, may be unexpected. Uh, for example, like service requests. I don't know. Like I would assume like because people are service requests, online service requests are one of the more interesting things because people are very ineloquent. Like they don't really describe what they need done <laughs> very well. <laughs> What challenges have you seen or continue to see in where where Wells Fargo's got to keep making investments and say, hey, we got to keep getting better in these arenas? Yeah, I think that if you if you build it up, uh, it's it's first of all the stability of the platforms. And to your point earlier, the criticality of being on. Yeah. If the app is not on, then the bank is down, basically closed for 89% of all transactions. So stability first, that means you have to have a resilient design of your digital channels and the way it chatters with any type of systems that are providing the data. By now you have complete new stacks, as you know, than 10 years ago. Today you have resilient yeah. stacks like MongoDB, Cassandra, having an operational data store in the channel itself, you can always rely upon and fall back upon. It's highly resilient. Uh, you have event streaming with Kafka and other solutions by which the backends keep on publishing events to the front end. Um, if I look in a highly resilient way, that's one, stability. Security is the second thing, like you said. And it starts basically with our customers first, just being profoundly educated about if you get a text message from Wells Fargo and there is a link embedded and it doesn't smell right or it doesn't feel right, just don't click on the link, call the call center, walk to the branch or ask a question in the online app. The second thing is we need to make sure that we know which traffic is benign, it's okay, mm -hmm. and which traffic is malicious. So who tries to pretend being Albert? And we can see that that login is not Albert because of geolocation, device usage, uh, whatever it is that we can combine in that view to make sure it's not secure and we can stop it. And then the third thing to your point, how much of the interactions between a customer and the bank can you actually automate? And one of the yeah. hardest things that you and I know is natural language processing. So a service request to a, a virtual assistant, we're building a new generation virtual assistant at this point and uh, things like empathy, emotional context. Uh, if I say the word help, I can say help in 15 different ways. But if I scream help, I clearly need help, I'm in panic. Yeah. Or if I ask for help or I offer help, all the words are different. It's the context that drives the interpretation of a question and an answer. So it's beautiful for technologists to start to crack that nut. I'm not saying it's easy, but we try to bring everything that you can do human to human to app to human. And then you come to the, basically to the constraints one time at one day where you say, we cannot do more. This, this is really still human to human. Yeah. For yourself, when you, Cause like, I'm sure banking, so I'm assuming each industry has like vernacular, like you said, in language that is kind of unique to it. Um, I'll use an example. I used to work with AMC theaters and we, we tried to do natural language processing for people reviewing the facilities. And it was very, very difficult because you could never tell if someone was actually criticizing the facility, like the seats, the service, the cleanliness, that's the, the theater's fault. Or the movie, yeah, because they'd be like, "This sucks." Well, what what sucks? Because <laughs> they didn't. They're like, "Well, the movie sucks. Like, it's not my 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 deal." But you know, if the facilities are not good. That's that's our problem. And so they would they kind of had to develop almost a secondary system, almost to recognize language for yourself. Is that something that is 
is that my understanding? Like you guys are working directly with maybe vendors or your internal team to try to figure out like this is the language of banking. Uh, it's a great, it's a great point. We work together with Google on this one. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, they have a profound, as you know, AI lab. And from that AI lab, they have profound algorithms on NLP. Yeah. Those algorithms on NLP are helping us to tune and train the models to come to words that are specific to a bank. To your point, the word service for a bank is something different than for a garage that is servicing cars. Yeah. Uh, account can have many meanings. For a bank, it's a specific meaning. So to your point, that context, again, of an industry and a company needs to be embedded in NLP to give you as a customer the feeling like, hey, you're really chatting with me yeah. instead of this is a chatbot that tries to get rid of me as soon as it can. Or it's just not understanding my question. The other thing I think about when in in your industry that's probably a lot different than it was a couple of years ago, um, or many years ago, depending on what you what you consider a long time ago, is the interrelationship of data now that is occurring. Right, more and more people are leveraging tools like Plaid to authenticate their bank accounts, the other services. Right, I might hook my Wells Fargo account to my Bitcoin account. So there's all this like information exchange happening, right? Like, well, I, I'm a Wells Fargo customer. I can tell you that it's hooked up to my TurboTax. It's potentially hooked up to my, uh, you know, crypto account. It's hooked up to my trading platforms. It's hooked up to maybe a uh, product that I use to manage my personal finances. So, I mean, that's at least four endpoint gateways right there. Um, probably more, right? That's definitely a newer thing where you can API connect your account's financial information to cross-exchange information more frequently. How do you go about securing this information? And how do you think about security? Because you also have to make your, I'm assuming you got you got to make sure your partner's secure too. Because if because when the when the breach or an identity theft or something like that happens as a customer, I don't know who to blame. I just blame everybody. <laughs> right. I, I share honestly with you, I was shocked when I started to learn how we were doing data exchange with Plaid, uh -huh. Yodli, Mint, uh, the Intuit, all the, the big aggregators in the day. And I talk about now eight years ago, eight, seven years ago, screen scraping, literally. What? You provided your, you, <laughs> literally, user ID, password, you provided that to Plaid, Yodli, the others. And they started to screen scrape overnight your balances and your transactions into their systems, into their databases. That was literally how it went. And mm. you have seen maybe five years ago that started to stop because we said that that cannot be the case anymore. And the large banks, we build a OFX, a generic API that every bank can use by which you have a data exchange in a secured way with an encrypted protocol without sharing your user ID and password. So most of the aggregators, almost all, at least the largest, have now that API because they had to do work on their side, as you can imagine as well. They have now this API by which it has become safe. I always say, and to you as well, Albert, and to any other customer, like, keep on thinking for yourself. If somebody is asking you your user ID and password, that's basically the key of your house, the key of your car, the key of your bank account, that you provide to somebody else to help you with your bank account that could lead to issues over time. So that's not needed anymore. And if you are still with an aggregator, Albert, that is requiring you to do that, I can give you a few names where it's not needed anymore. <laughs> that's a good thing on a personal note. You know, the we talk about this, the the transition of banking, mobile banking, and you know, I'm one of those people. So please, no one ever come try to steal my cell phone because everything I have is hooked up to it. What does that mean, I guess, for financial security? 
um, now that as a customer, I might have a whole app suite of apps that are my finances, um, payments, everything that I have monetarily, possibly, I think I'm not the only one. I'm sure there's millions of people just like me that if they lose their phone, they've lo- they've given away or possibly have compromised a gateway to all their financials. How do you guys think about securing customers knowing that you know they have all this on their phone now? Yeah. If you look at the app actually on your phone is a container. It's not something that has persistent data on your phone. Yeah. So right. you open up the phone, you have a connection with the bank, and we make sure that everything is loaded for that moment in the app on your phone. But it's not persistent there. So the data don't stick around when you're not logged in to the app, which is important to know. So if you lose your phone, yeah, you lose all your app data, but not your bank data. Gotcha. So and then, yeah, for the other apps and financial apps that are there, what we have seen, Albert, in the last seven years that fintech really became big, all this, uh, the other players that are surrounding the banks with fantastic apps, you use them. I use them myself as well. I will, I will be honest, there are point solutions where you say that's really handy to have. They are not always as well protected as a large bank. They don't have the pockets or they don't have the skills to do that, or they don't see the threat level that we can oversee. It's always your own decision to engage with those companies. And I, I will never stop people from doing it. I do it myself. Our children are doing it. I get that. But you always have to be aware of there is a different protection level for those type of companies than with a larger bank. Mm-hmm. Give us an idea, like the, you know, obviously you can't give away trade secrets or whatever, but give us, because that's one of the things that people, like when I think of why do I invest why do I have money with Wells Fargo? Why do I have money with Vanguard? Like some of the older guard companies and that I'm comfortable disclosing this about myself. Like if I were to think about my financial blend, most of my money is with the older companies that have more reputation because I feel more confident with my money in Fidelity, in Wells Fargo, in uh, Vanguard, Oppenheimer. You know, I feel better there. And I do experiment with some of the newer companies. Give us an idea of like how your like philosophies and how your guys are approaching securing people because you know money is one of those things where everyone of course everyone's very protective of it once they have it they want to know that it's like it's untouchable and that's why we uh, we always get so scared of identity thieves right because that's that's the only time we it's really scary really scary stuff is when an identity thief event occurs well first of all i need to thank you for being a customer of wells fargo Should yeah. I earlier? But thank you for that albert and And thank you for the trust that you put into us. Security, if you want to, the philosophy, if you want to call it like that, it's first of all bigger than the bank itself. So security happens on a national level in coordination with uh, agencies, security agencies, intelligence agencies, uh, the infrastructure players like the telcos, the large cloud providers. It is an industry that is tightly knitted together in terms of cybersecurity. Mm. We share everything that we can share. There's no competition on security between the banks, the telcos, the large infrastructure players, and the agencies that infuse their knowledge to us as well. And we bring it back to them as well. There's a, there's a high degree of exchange of data, intelligence, and information on a daily level. Mm. Then the second thing, that's the first layer of defense. Let's call it like that. The second layer of defense is everything that you do yourself to monitor Uh, to prevent things, uh, to detect things early on, uh, to make sure that you recover. 
And a few things that I want to call out that are first important. First of all, protecting the parameter, of course. The parameter is our outside firewall that is in connection with internet. Those points uh, and that part of the network is, yeah, is the best protected area that you can think of, um, where you can have no vulnerabilities. Bad guys are scanning that, that domain constantly. And then secondly, data devaluation, as we call it. So you have to make sure that if somebody gets in, there's nothing to get because the data is devaluated. What do we mean with that, Albert? That it's masked, it's encrypted, it's stored in an area where nobody can ever come. So make sure that even if they are getting there, that the data itself, they cannot do anything with it because it's well encrypted or well masked. And then the third thing is all about recoverability. So if something happens like destructive malware and bad actors are able to get in, destroy, like happened with Sony a few years ago, maybe you remember, mm -hmm. Sony was really hard hit by Marsk, the container company, exactly the same. And then you're basically wiped out on your data side. And if you don't have an immutable storage, as we call that, immutable storage means it's air-gapped, it's separate, your crown jewels are there, Bad actors can do something in the production environments, but it cannot spill over or leak over to that immutable storage environment. So you can always recover again and bring it back again. Those are a few philosophies that I can share. I cannot share anything more than this. <laughs> That's not a problem. I mean, it makes sense. I think people always want to know, people always understand like, right, the security element has to be somewhat protected, but also want to, they all want to know a little, be like, hey, man, how, why is, how am I secured? So I appreciate you sharing some of the insights there. You know, let's talk about some fun stuff too, like how things are going to change in the future. For example, I got to ask Wells Fargo, you know, a lot of these, we talked about it, we joked about it earlier, like these banks born in the cloud, no retail branches. You mentioned telcos and working with the infrastructure players. Is cloud part of the solution at Wells Fargo or will you continue building infrastructure or is it both? Is it a hybrid approach? You're going to continue building data center infrastructure, continue building cloud services to give customers more services faster and better services. Yeah, so our, our, our long-term vision is, is bold and aggressive that everything will go to public cloud. Uh, so the whole bank will move to public cloud and people then ask me, how long will that take, Sal? I always say between eight and 18 years. I really don't know. There is no trade <laughs> schedule to bring a large bank to the cloud. But if you look at Albert, all the trends in the industry, all software that we buy is already SaaS, software as a service, yeah. which is already hosted somewhere on or AWS or Azure or Google or Oracle or IBM, all of them. So that is one. Then secondly, if you build today, if you would build a new bank today, would you build a data center yourself and then buy Probably a mainframe and hire a COBOL engineer and start. No, you wouldn't. You, you, you would build a, a cloud native set of microservices with Spring Boot uh, and a framework around it uh, with data decoupled from the mini apps that you have. So you don't have this tight coupling that we have today in many of the platforms, not to trust the best, but with the knowledge of today, you will go to cloud immediately. So if you take a long-term perspective as uh, a head of technology, but the whole team, the whole leadership team of the bank is in the same mindset, we will go to cloud. Now, we, we declared our strategy last year. We announced that and we are executing that strategy. And again, that will take time. We have a roadmap for the next three to four years, but I know this could take 12 years, 14 years, eight years. We will see. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's untold how how to move it move a system of this size because you'll be the first <laughs> potentially. Give us an idea. You know, you mentioned before the, the you know that it's a it's a multi cloud strategy. You mentioned the different public cloud providers, uh, probably some private infrastructure as well. But give us an idea. What does that mean for your strategy? What does it mean? What are some of the advantages, some of the disadvantages you see in that that path you're about to take? Yeah. So. When I explain it to uh, to people who do not know much about the cloud, uh, I always say it, there's nothing like a cloud. It's just somebody else's computer. Yeah, someone else's computer. <laughs> somebody else's computer and the idle the idle capacity of a whole lot of somebody else's computer that is getting virtualized and provided to you and on demand with variable pricing that you can control yourself to a certain level. So when you start to think about the advantages of doing that, that means that for you and me, our developers have suddenly development environments, test environments at the tip of their fingers. Mm -hmm. They can spin up a test, a test environment like this. The container is getting launched on the cloud. They do the test routine, it comes back again, or we do the security scan, it comes back again with the results. That is a complete different environment than an environment where you need to request for an environment, a development environment where it takes a bit of time through all the request systems before somebody is actually providing that. Often it's software driven even that provisioning, but that can still take weeks, days, where it's a matter of seconds in a different world. So that is, I guess, that is the biggest, yeah, for us, the biggest upside to do it. It's multi-cloud, like multi-public cloud. Mm -hmm. So we have chosen for, and that's public, I can share that here for Microsoft Azure and Google. We do that for two reasons. One is risk. Don't put all eggs in one basket, although the majority will go to Azure. Uh, we will have Google for the specialized data-driven analytical workloads, like the NLP routines. Microsoft can do that as well, but the offering of Google is just better uh, commercially yeah. and in some ways technically maybe as well, although now I get a call of Microsoft in a second if I say that, and I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Or or you could, or you pushing product innovation. You know what I mean? They might be like turn into their engineers, like, hey, we gotta impress Saul. No, it's it's but it's it's great to see how uh, and the U.S. should really feel proud about the the tech industry on the West Coast and what has been built there in the last 40, 50 years, and how strong and powerful the the level of innovation is because we benefit from that as well as a bank. So I I just I, I want to make that clear. Sometimes there's the context of tech giants and the dooming, but there's a lot of glooming because of the tech giants as well. We can have this conversation because it's recorded in the cloud. It has literally, you don't need a data center, Albert, to run your own podcast and your own show uh, because of the providers that I just mentioned. It's something to be proud of. And what do you think that's going to mean for the new product and services Wells Fargo is going to roll out? Because I would assume as a head of technology, it gets the most exciting. It's like, hey, now that we've done this, we're going to build that. And that is going to be so killer. Everyone's going to love that experience. What are some of the things that you see on the horizon, whether at Wells Fargo or just the finance industry in general, that you, that are going to, that customers you think are just going to be wowed by? Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an exciting question. Um, we announced Fargo as our new virtual assistant. And I just mentioned already Google, NLP, it's really set up in a different way than a chatbot. And it is a rich conversation that, uh, that allows our customer to have the feeling like they don't talk to a bot, they talk with a human being, but that human being is NLP. It's an algorithm, it's a routine. 
you can do this if you do it in a different way. And we think we nailed it. And the Google team is highly excited as well. But we, we have to see what, the, at the end of the day, the customer is always right. We have to see what they think of it. If I look at what is coming, yeah, it's, it's a world that is like, there are a few big drivers of change in the tech industry coming. The one is compute power. Yeah. So we see that uh, acceleration, of course, for years with the law of more, but we see how it's breaking out of that law because of uh, quantum computing that is coming. And for many people, this still feels like that science fiction will never be there. And I think they will be all wrong. It will be there. 2023 is IBM has a commercial roadmap and they say the 1017 qubit environment will be available by the end of 2023. And so far their roadmap has been hitting all the milestones. Mm. If that is available, a 1017 qubit environment, you can spin up an algorithm that is sucking up so much data and can do it in such a fast processing time that you can start doing things that you could never do before, like trading. If I look at markets and if I look at, we are a bank and we do trades and we are on markets around the globe, stock markets, commodity markets. We can do amazing things together with the quants, uh, the people who are thinking about our pricing and our risk positioning through compute power. Now, the second thing is neural networks uh, and deep AI, if you want to call it like that, which is scary on the one hand, but it could be promising on the other hand. We might see an explosion of um, academic or scientific research and outcomes because of the ability to power and data with so much AI and neural network capacity against it that we can find out new things, things that we didn't know as human beings. That is the second thing I would say. So I'm excited about the future, if I can say it like that, as long as we yeah. keep technology, technology here for humankind and not the other way around, that humankind becomes submissive to technology. That might be the case in a hundred years from now, but I hope that I don't experience that. So I want to, I do want to ask you a question about like small businesses, because, you know, missions of small business, I've always been in small business and I'm curious about this because I can see technology really helping here. You know, for the longest time as a small business, getting a loan is a lot harder. There's less history. There's less, uh, there's more risk, less history, even though you're asking for a smaller amount, you know, the, the banks will risk you, put a risk profile on you. Do you see a place where this data will help unlock? It sounds like it could potentially unlock much more entrepreneurship because, Instead of the historical model, which might only have so many data points, you might have more and be like, well, well, this guy's a, you know, he's an engineer from MIT. He's, you know, or she looks like this, this, and this, like she's entering a sector like that. I mean, it feels less risky. Do you see like, like liquidity markets, especially for entrepreneurs potentially being like seeing some benefit from this? I think it's a small business is one of the overseen segments, if I can say it like that, for two reasons. One, the consumer segment is always the largest in a bank. So it gets all the attention and priority often. Yeah. And then secondly, know your customer or anti-money laundering is something that starts to hit directly the small business customers. So banks are required, Albert, to risk profile any company to know where the money is coming from to avoid that the bank can be used for money laundering. That is something that is really hindering the small business companies because we give them a lot of questions before they can onboard yeah. just to know where the, the money is coming from. And could this be with less friction? Oh, yeah, for sure. Should we do more investments on that? Oh, for sure. Are we doing that? Yes, for sure. I know the investments that are coming. 
Is it today painful for many small business players with many banks? Yeah. And I hope that I provided a bit of context yeah. why it's so hard. But really, know your customer is it's a good thing for the society and for justice. Uh, but it can create and it has created friction for the onboarding of customers. Do you see a place where AI or where it could potentially understand risk yeah. more clearly algorithmically so that you, it's not so painful to go through that process? Yeah, absolutely. This is where data and the power of data can help. Where data are available. So when there is no background on your business or you just started three months ago, it is always a kind of leap of faith to start with yeah. each other. You know what I mean? You have that faith yeah. in the bank that they will not betray you when you really need them. Huh? Like they <laughs> pick up the umbrella and they take it back when it rains. No, you, you want to trust that, that bank. And the bank has that same decision to make that they trust you when you ask for that small yeah. business loan. And if there is no data, it really comes down to the quality of your plan, the quality of your people, the competition in the street, those type of things. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, I'd love to see a place where there's more, you know, of course, like you said, you have to take away the risk, but, you know, I think there's probably, you know, I think we all would agree that there's a lot of innovative people that would be great business leaders if, if they had access to some capital, mar a capital yes. market that allowed them to, to potentially try something. So, I mean, I think that's going to be an exciting change in the future. Yes. Yes. Well, Saul, it was awesome having you on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing so much about the banking industry, your own career, as well as what is coming at Wells Fargo. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Saul, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Yeah. All right. Engineers, developers, heads of technology are often builders, where they build things outside of work. Do you build or code things outside of work? I've done my own uh, cloud certification uh, in the <laughs> last few months. Uh, so that's the last thing that I've been uh, touching keyboard for myself. Let's say it like that. <laughs> How about with your hands? Do you do anything with your hands to create? I'm a writer. I love to cook. I love to eat as well. I love to chop wood. If you, if you think that is something chop wood. chop wood, I love to, you know, there are things that you need to do to distract your brain and chopping wood is one of the things that helps the best with distracting the brain and just leave all your concerns behind you. If you have concerns. All right. Without question, you are the first person we have talked to on IT Visionaries that chops wood for fun. I have split logs myself. It is very hard to do. Are you doing this with an ax? Uh, with an ax, with an ax and a wood block and with an ax and it's great to do. Yeah, it is, for anyone who's never done this before, it is, it is amazingly hard. Uh, I will tell you this, and maybe Saul can give me some tips. It really depends more on accuracy than brute power. Like we used this like splitter and you had to hit it with the hammer. And it was like, it, the more accurate you were, the more likely the log was split. If you missed it in any way, the log wouldn't split. You're so right. You have to look at the grain of the block that you try to chop. You have to look at how the grain is. I saw this with my father and my oldest brother who always tried to show off against my father. And my father was not that strong, but he always split first time right. And then my brother was like almost angry with himself that it took him more time than my father to split a block. What do you do with all this wood? Are you a fire pit guy or do you whittle? Do you sell it? So fire pits and we use it for the other house. We had a fireplace. And when we went on vacation in France, a uh, small town in uh, Burgundy, 
I, I was like, yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. And you said you mentioned you're also a cook. What do you like to make? Yeah, but I'm so meat. I, I do the meat and I, I, I love to cook that. Um, pastas, simple food. Uh, I don't go over the top with difficult things. Uh, I like to have a good meal, simple but good quality ingredients, a good wine next to it, and then the company around the table enjoying it. And that's for me like, okay, job done. Job done. Sounds like you're talking also by possibly a fire from wood that you split. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I got a fun question for you. How many more years before people will not recognize what is the Wells Fargo logo? Ooh, that will take a long time. No, that will take a long time. Listen, that, no, that is because nobody can predict the future, but I'm pretty sure that I will be still around. And even then people will, and I have a long life to live. I tell you that, Albert. And even then yeah, yeah. people will still recognize the logo of Wells Fargo. There you go. The, the wagon. So the, so, cause I'm, I don't know. Cause my, my son, until he played Oregon Trail, he did not know what it was. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh, Oregon Trail. I was like, yeah, but like, this is actually how people cross the United States. He's like, uh, what? People use these things? <laughs> 170 years ago. You know, there were pioneers, you know? And it's That's actually right. a fun fact for you maybe to know for your audience is like the first ever internet payment transaction for a company was done by Wells Fargo in 1994. The company was called Virtual Vineyards in Napa Valley. And they were able to use the internet in those days to settle a transaction for e-commerce. So they were selling virtual vineyards. They were selling wine already through the internet. And then the first internet banking account, you could close it with Wells Fargo in 1995. So that's already, what is it now? 25 years ago, 27 years ago. That's where we were at the beginning of all these things. Now, we will not be at the end of all these things. We will carry it on, whatever the spectrum of banking is going to be, Alvin. Yeah, listen, I, I, if, if the, I'm telling you this. If the Oregon Trail doesn't continue to stay popular, people will know that covered wagon as, the Wells, Far- as Wells Fargo. They won't know what it was originally. <laughs> <laughs> just like the save button. It's just like the save button. People look at a save button, like, it's a save button. But like, but what is it? Yes. And like my kids are like, I don't know what it is. It's like, it's just the save button. <laughs> yeah, I know. I get that. I fully get that. The banking industry is one of the ones that we all depend on everything that you can do to make it go faster, better. Listen, we're all here for it. It's a big part of all of our lives. Thank you, Albert. Thanks for having me. 